Our cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and the private sector. Why not register and join us at the Macromedics User Meeting on the 8th of November at the Novotel Hotel in London Paddington? This will be an incredibly insightful day to listen to talks on the Macromedics mobilisation range from our various ranges of thermoplastics all the way to our all-in-one solutions and SBRT products. Please do get in touch for more information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. If you would like to browse our products, please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name's Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We'll open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning therapeutic radiography-led oncology podcast. Welcome to a bonus World Radiography Day 2022 episode. My name is Tara Smith and I'm joined by my fellow host, Dr Lisa Whittaker. Hello. So um, before we get going, I thought we'll just introduce ourselves very briefly. So um, my name's Tara and I'm a therapeutic radiography second year student and uh, I've been helping out with the Rad Chat Rad Chat podcast uh, for nearly a year now, uh, sort of working behind the scenes, uh, listening to every episode that goes out before they, they go live, um, and I also help out with them, their social media posts as well. So that's me. Uh, Lisa, would you like to introduce yourself now? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Lisa. I'm Patient and Public Engagement Coordinator in the Centre for Medical Engineering at King's College London. And part of my job involves supporting radiation researchers funded by CRUK RADNET with their public engagement activities. Um, I'm really passionate about patient involvement in research. Um, and around this time last year, I started working on a brilliant project called Radiation Review um, with 10 amazing young adults and five researchers. And that's when I was lucky enough to first get in touch with Neyman and Joe. Um, and I've really tried to find every reason and excuse since then to keep working with them and do more and more together. Um, and I thought I would just explain a little bit about why we wanted to turn the tables a little bit and switch things around tonight. Um, so I think that Joe and Neyman's passion and enthusiasm for their work is amazing and really infectious. I think that they're brilliant role models um, who really practice what they preach. And I admire you both hugely, both professionally and personally. Um, and I know you've done amazing interviews with some brilliant guests on Rad Chat. Um, but I wanted to take the chance to interview you both and find out a little bit more about you. And uh, World Radiography Day was the perfect excuse um, and reason to do that. 
Well, I kick off then and ask you both, um, why do you think it's important? Maybe, Joe, you could start to mark World Radiography Day um, and to raise awareness of your profession. Yeah, of course. So World Radiography Day is um, celebrated on the 8th of November each year, and that date marks the anniversary of the discovery of X-ray radiation by William Rotgen in 1895. So he was a German mechanical engineer and a physicist, and he essentially produced and also detected the electric magnetic radiation in a wavelength, um, and that's what we know today as X-rays, or Rotgen rays, they used to be called. Um, an achievement that earned him a Nobel Prize in Physics in 1901. And also a fun fact, because um, it's actually Marie Curie's birthday today as well, um, that uh, Rotgen, as well as Marie Curie and Perry Curie, actually decided not to take out patents related to their discoveries um, because they wanted the society to benefit from the practical applications that they discovered and I suppose it's important to mark this day just thinking about how many lives are affected by the discovery of x-rays it's it's pretty phenomenal when you really think about how they are utilized every single day now so radiographers worldwide can use the day and the days around world radiography day to promote radio radiography as a career a profession the vital contribution to modern healthcare, and also an opportunity to raise the awareness for both diagnostic imaging and radiation oncology, which is something that we're both really, really passionate about, um, and obviously utilise RadChat to try and raise that profile. It's one of our big aims um, of the podcast, which is to kind of highlight public awareness. And I think as we've been going through rad chat and having access to patients and patients contacting us it's something we definitely probably know even more and have the anecdotal data there to really say that patients don't know enough about radiation therapies radiation treatments um and obviously it's a great it's a great way to mark world radiography day by highlighting yet again the amazing roles and, and what it is that therapeutic and diagnostic radiographers do um, so I love World Radiography Day. I suppose it's I'm relatively new to the profession compared to Jay. All right, all right. <laughs> it's uh, last week was five years qualified for me, so it's quite quite a big achievement, I suppose, to get to that point so far. Um, I think the reason I got into radiography because I wanted to be more patient facing. Um, I didn't enjoy the diagnostic side. For me, it wasn't enough patient care. I know they do a lot of good patient care stuff. Don't worry, but therapeutic radiographers you see the patients for weeks and sometimes they come back years later for further treatment and you just get to know them you get to know their families and it's just really rewarding because you might see a patient coming through at the start um and you know they're really struggling with their mental health and by the end of it they realize they can get through something and i think that kind of really highlights radiography as a profession it's the same for diagnostic radiographers because they'll see patients come through or worried about scans what's going to happen and then they'll help coach them, get them through so that they can get it. And I think a bit of pride in my profession, I suppose. Um, so whenever I've done STEM talks, um, so like uh, in schools trying to raise, especially around World Radiography Day, I always talk about Marie Curie, um, especially trying to get women into STEM. Um, I have a little sister, a little half sister. Um, she really likes science. And I always talked about how Marie Curie, because just because she was female, she had to drive her own x-ray van on the front line 
first world war to x-ray people at the back and it really showed how much it helped because people were having limbs amputated for no reason they were just yeah just thrown out sent to the moribund ward uh, basically to die but her x-ray machines found the bullets and made sure that more soldiers more like people really really young 17 16 year olds survived longer and i think that's where it's really come from and that's what we do now that we work to millimeter accuracy and yeah we help anyone and everyone whatever happens so i suppose for me with my role um just trying to smash all the glass ceilings that you know therapeutic radiographers can only push buttons or do something at a bunker nah we can do everything and still go back to the radiation proof bunker and yeah have a laugh even though the machine's broken down for the 10th time in the day patients are waiting bladders aren't full but we just get on with it because yeah we're in the the darkest deepest corner of a hospital but yeah we love it especially the biscuits and chocolates um can i ask a quick extra question sorry um can i ask you both did you always want to work in this area or did you want to do any other jobs when you were younger did you always want to do this (laughs) (laughs) i am the typical example lisa of how a lot of people come into therapeutic radiography so um i always wanted to be a physio absolutely wanted to be a physio i was doing gb swim training i was you know really into my sport at school and i also knew i kind of wanted to work in healthcare so physio aligned really nicely um but i started a course passed out uh, knew very quickly i was never going to make a very good physio and even to this day if i have physiotherapy now i pass out so i would have been horrific um but i was walking through campus very upset that i'd moved lock stock and barrel to sheffield and i'd told my parents that i was going to be a physio and i was going to have to tell them that actually i'm really sorry i can't do this and uh yeah angela um duxbury a professor in radiotherapy at the university at the time said oh just be a therapeutic radiographer and i was like i don't even know what that is and um and yeah she 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 uh, she made me go to the royal berkshire hospital spend a day there absolutely loved it and i was back the next week starting the course so a lot of people fall into the profession exactly because people don't know the role exists um and that's one of the big limiting factors i think Norman, what about you uh no so i did the master's route into radiotherapy um to be honest when i did my undergraduate in biomedical sciences i didn't know anything about radio radiography as a whole and i used to always call us therapy radiographers i remember even writing that in my personal statement for my master's joe you've told me off enough times for it i know i've learned now <laughs> and i make sure i correct other people but um I, I always wanted to be a special forces medic um and then when i didn't get into med school obviously my place in the army um and yeah just got taken away so that was quite hard but then following through into biomedical sciences which i think anyone who gets rejected from a med school you go and study biomedical sciences it's like a route of path like yeah it's just just yeah what happens i think um but then i realized it was really difficult to get a job afterwards uh then i worked in india in a and e just to be like a physician's associate internship just going out on ambulance calls fighting the traffic you know going into random places in delhi bringing patients back um and yeah i just saw the ugly side of medicine where we were bringing patients back to life who probably had been dead for over 12 hours and somehow we managed to get heart activity but no brain activity but we kept them alive for days on end just to rack up the bill 
and that was it that was me not wanting to be a doctor anymore so eventually because I did uh, my dissertation in my first degree just based on kind of lymphoma and hematological kind of malignancies that's how I got into working in the lab in that and then this master's came up I think I was the last one on the NHS bursary route so I was very lucky to get in but it was the 18 month masters which I think now it's either two years or three years so no time off lots of intense work and three quite hard placements where yeah just working three nights a week over the weekend to be able to afford to get the train down to Taunton where I was there so that's how I fell into it. Wow I'm always fascinated by how people end up in the jobs that they're in because I don't have any grand plan and it's um yeah it's just always worked out quite well in one way or another but um yeah I think it's amazing now that that you both are are raising awareness of therapeutic radiographers and and that as an option and, and as a profession I think that will make such a difference for people going forward. Mm. Um, it's interesting hearing how a lot of uh, pathways are different into radiography and I think definitely uh, it's been uh, you guys joining the therapeutic radiography workforce has been uh, a real asset so I'm glad it didn't work you know the way you you planned so uh, that's, that's great to uh, hear different stories of how people join the workforce. And there's so many options available now it's amazing for lots of allied health professions it's it's brilliant to know that there are routes into professions like therapeutic radiography, diagnostic radiography um, that maybe you know anyone previously would have had to have gone back to college or done further education it's great now that there are apprenticeships there's the msc pre-registration um, there's obviously bsc programs and you know that widening participation is brilliant because we want we want a varied demographic on the workforce and and it's really important i think that you're able to make it accessible and not just accessible because we're struggling to recruit you know accessible because it's important for our patients it's important to inspire and aspire to have a profession that people can access i think it's really important yeah absolutely um so what are the biggest challenges to your jobs i know you both have slightly different roles within therapeutic radiography but um would you like to go first yeah um so my job is as an advanced practice therapeutic radiographer. So I work in the treatment review team. So any patient who comes through, um, we would treat their physical and psychosocial side effects from any form of the cancer treatment. So you know, it could be doing a benefits form with someone or trying to get them pain relief or something like that. But the biggest challenges at the minute is, I mean, we've, we've harked about it enough, I think, Joe, in our own private lives, but there's workforce and just being demotivated there's definitely not enough hours in the day when you don't have enough people um but it's just a bit relentless i think i think covid everyone pulled together so much and people were redeployed so many new skills came into the department um you know and it was great we all pulled together new techniques etc came through but you know it's still going on um to be honest i think the covid side of things but also the cancer backlog it's we work in an area which is emotionally demanding but the rewards are great and a lot of it is you need to um, kind of motivate yourself in a way. So I always talk about this to people. It's very fluffy. Um, sorry, Joe. I know you like the word fluffy. Um, <laughs> I can't think of another word now. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's like having a bit of an internal in inner fist bump because I think we're just not good at the moment in the NHS of talking about the positives because there aren't that many, which is true. And I think you need to be realistic about it. It's great that we get cards and 
thank yous and stuff but it's just not enough i mean a band five at the moment going in takes home less money than someone working at aldi i think that says enough really it's you know the nurses are going on strike soon that's a huge thing and over 100 years i've never done that that's the biggest challenges at the moment they're trying to keep people motivated so like i line manage people and i have done in the past but you know you can throw money at cpd courses and stuff but if they don't get the time to study for it they're not getting the most out of it it's not just a tick box you know fine i can go and do a module which i really want to do but if i only get one hour in three weeks i'm not going to be engaged in it if i'm tired going home so like i love the patient side um as challenging as it can be you know it's great that i'll never complain about that because that's the best part of the job for me and it's you know patients are the business i suppose but there's only so much we can all do i think at the minute we get a lot of abuse from patients who've been waiting hours and hours because there's just not enough of us and obviously we are doing the best we can but when you're in a situation being sort of squeezed in from every direction it's quite hard but we're still going um you know christmas is coming up i'm sure we'll have a good time because the way christmas falls this year i think most departments will be working on bank holiday so that's boxing day to be going in so that will be quite tough for a lot of people so it'll be the first time i think in two years people will actually get to spend time with their families and we'll have to be working on boxing day most of us um obviously it's different if not everyone celebrates christmas like i don't mind going in but it's not yeah i don't get a holiday for diwali and things like that so there is a bit of a divide in that sense as well Thanks, Evan. Um, Joe, what about you? Yeah, so um, I think every year there are always different challenges. And obviously working in an education setting, they're very different challenges to Numen. However, I think from doing the podcast, we've realised that they complement each other and actually things that are happening in clinical are also visible within the education setting. And ultimately, you know, that that feed through of the workforce has been a real challenge over over the course of the last couple of years and covid helped um from a recruitment perspective into the profession but um that's definitely waned now and in the media doesn't help with kind of exacerbating maybe some of the difficulties that nhs staff are facing and and kind of saying you know you wouldn't want to work in the nhs it you know it certainly puts people off um i think I personally, I, I love the challenges that the role allows us to have to face. Um, I'm sure I would maybe look differently at that if I had a patient who I know needed counselling. And actually the waiting time for counselling is between six to 12 months. And knowing that that patient is going to have to cope on their own without that level of support, I think it's maybe different from that perspective. But I suppose just to kind of put into context, because we love some stats, um, I was looking at the workforce consensus and actually the total NHS radiotherapy radiographic workforce currently is at 3,640.3, don't forget the 0.3, whole time equivalents. Um, so that compromises of 3,553.4 um, full time equivalents, therapeutic radiographers, and then 86.9 full-time equivalent assistant practitioners, trainee assistant practitioners and clinical support workers. Joe, what does whole-time equivalent mean just for anyone who's from abroad listening to us? Yeah, so how they work out the consensus is there will be some people that are part-time, so they'll add up the hours. So it's essentially how many how many people are working those full-time hours. Um, but the NHS radiographic workforce grew by 28% between 2012 and 2021 which sounds really positive 
but actually we were already in a deficit uh, 2012 and we are also using radiotherapy more for cancer patients so you know you could really critique some of the statistics um, the vacancy rate at the moment, well, it was in 2020. I can guarantee, even though we've not got any more recent data, it would have gone up because of the impact of COVID. Currently, it sits at 8.4%. So, you know, lots of vacant position, um, positions available. And it is actually the highest recorded vacancy rate since the beginning of collecting data. So, you know, when you talk about vacancy rates, it sounds really small when you say 8.4%. But actually, because we are a small profession, that is really significant. And it's something that I always raise, and I know I've talked about on the podcast before, but, you know, when we talk about some of the statistics within therapeutic radiography, it they sound small, but we're, because we're such a small profession, actually the impact of, of any percentage deficit um, has a real impact um so it's things like that that you really need to start to think about and address um you know when we were looking at the backdrop to the consensus um it was interesting how they were also talking about what's to come so looking at um essentially how many people are due to retire in the next coming years how many people are leaving like i just know personally through talking to friends um, who work in the profession that they are leaving or looking for other opportunities um, and that can be really difficult and I also see how you know there are amazing roles developing because of the lack of oncologists so we have people going into ACP roles consultancy roles and that is amazing for our profession like absolutely amazing but it does then mean that the very experienced members of staff who were working and supporting some of the younger band five um, staff actually aren't there to support them with their experience, knowledge, expertise. And there's no data to prove it, but I would be really interested to look at maybe like some of the Datex forms that are going through, how many errors. I like I just wonder whether there are things happening within the profession, exactly as the nurses have commented about that unsafe working because of the workforce shortages and and we can do so much in terms of higher education institutes and routes into practice to be able to try and bolster the workforce and increase the number of people training but essentially that is limited by clinical capacity and it's you know it's it's not surprising that the quality of education the quality of training maybe does suffer and you know I'm not saying it is but you know there's that potential because of the fact that workforce are absolutely solely dedicated to just trying to get everything done for the patients because of the workforce shortages um and everyone is trying really hard but there are so many hours in a day and I think that that can be a real challenge and for me personally I feel that challenge so I feel the students struggling I see the number of palliative patients that they're treating in clinical settings has increased as a result of covid that impacts them emotionally so you know the i've always counseled more students than i ever have um cancer patients you know it's really hard it's hard training to be a therapeutic or diagnostic radiographer um and i think you know having that 
level of responsibility where you go home at night thinking I know that student's not struggling have they got enough support have they you know accessed the counselling service and that that can be really hard as an educator and I don't think we always talk about that um, around some of the challenges that we face in supporting students who might be struggling and and again you know then going into work and thinking right okay are, are they being looked after when they're not necessarily in my care so yeah lots of challenges but that's ultimately why we do rad chat as well to try and raise awareness about these things but also to hope helpfully hopefully help people to to think of ways in which we can make things better can i throw in a question there for you (laughs) um if there was no object to you know money or resource what what could be done to help because it's not just recruitment it's retention as well what if you had a magic wand what uh what would be the priorities for you guys give everyone a month off and get a whole new workforce in for that month then we can all have a break and come back i would say um nice staff rooms um lockers it equipment infrastructure increase in holiday dates increase in pay peer support preceptorship um, I would also say that managers um, to have additional support in leadership management. I would also say that uh, CPD to be free for a year from all HEIs um, so that people can do the qualifications that they want to do. Yeah, just a few things. <laughs> you did say if money wasn't an object, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> That's true, I did ask. You don't ask for much, too. That's before we start going, can we have all departments with, you know, more Linux, can we have more imaging, more surface guided radiotherapy, all the newer technology, MR Linux, let's get them in. Yeah, sorry. I think something great for patients would be kind of the time waiting and maybe having a bit more support once they've been diagnosed and not just speaking to someone when they have to come back for a CT scan pre-radiotherapy and also post-treatment, just have people calling them, like support workers, just a week later, how you doing? Like, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> what do you have for breakfast today? Anything. Just, they don't get anything sometimes. Some some patients will get a follow-up six months later. A lot happens in six months after treatment. Like, you're just throwing... I mean, we, I feel like sometimes we just throw our patients off the edge of a cliff. It's just not fair. So, yeah. Um, and, yeah, more holidays and everything else Joe said, obviously, as well. It just it just sounds so obvious. Like, you know, you've, you've said it all already, but, you know, with more people being treated with radiotherapy, you know, money's being ploughed in on the research side. But, we've you know, we've got to recruit and retrain, retain and value and pay the clinical staff properly and well. I mean, it just... It, it, just seems like a no-brainer I mean or you just get trapped in this vicious cycle and and then you know as, as you've just pointed out that's the patients that suffer as well at the end of it you you touched on there uh, both of you sort of briefly about what motivates you but I'd like to know a little bit more about that if that's okay just kind of in and out of work like what what does keep you going um you know other than those kind of inner fist bumps what else keeps you going um joe can we come to you first yeah um so it sounds really corny and when i was prepping for this podcast episode i was like oh i can't say that because i sound ridiculous but it is generally that i want to be a better person um i just have a real drive to make people's lives better um, look who's being fluffy now yeah it's not fluffy <laughs> 
Um, my family always laugh because they said, oh, maybe it's because you worked in hospitality and you always wanted to make the G&Ts look nice and things like that. But I don't know. Um, but I, it, genuinely, that is where it comes from. And it, it drives my family mad, to be honest, because even little things like we live in a nice community and we have girl guiding and scouting and we have lots of village um, village support networks for older people and stuff and even little things like doing the Christmas lights. I volunteer for everything um, and I also volunteer my family on behalf, uh, which they absolutely hate and also enjoy at the same time. Um, but I just firmly believe that if everyone gives a little something, like I'm not suggesting that everyone has to do like the Christmas lights for the village or do a charity walk or, you know, it's not about necessarily going above and beyond all the time. But if everyone just did a little bit of something to give something back, I just think society would be better. You know, we'd probably have more support for the elderly. You'd have lonely people who had a contact or someone to talk to, you know, getting your neighbour's bins in and things like that. So I, I kind of use that in my personal life as well as obviously my professional life and I genuinely kind of see the impact that healthcare and being healthy has has on your own life and I suppose I've used healthcare a lot during my life like I'm not I'm not an ill person but I definitely really suffered with endometriosis and polycystic ovaries that was a horrific period of time in my life when I was first qualified actually I remember I used to keep fainting when I was working and it was just a horrific time because I didn't get diagnosed for years um, and my team were all really supportive but I can also envisage that some of them were literally like oh she's fainted again let's get her out um, so it must have been a nightmare to work with me to be fair for that period of time and then went through IVF um, with having Noah and you know that that was honestly probably the hardest time of my life going through fertility treatment um, and then having cancer, which was a bit of a weird one because actually I probably use it a lot in my professional career. So it, it kind of helped me in a weird sense. I know I've said that before on the podcast and everyone goes, you're a weirdo, but um, it kind of has helped me to understand what it feels like to be told you've got cancer and some of the things that go through your head. And I know everyone's different, but it definitely has made me look at life a little bit differently. But I, I genuinely am passionate about the NHS and supporting the NHS and the workforce. So I think that's what motivates me to get out of bed in the morning and do what I do. Thanks, Joe. Um, I completely agree with so much of what you said there and can relate a lot to what you said as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Um, Naman? Um, yeah, I think my name literally means to serve in English. So I think from a young age, I always knew I wanted to help people. Um, it's obviously there's a bit of a, a racist joke that people always talk about that oh you know you're Asian you're Indian are you going to be a doctor or an engineer or something like that but actually I think people forget where that comes from is when people like me move abroad we have to do the best job possible to fit in be part of society so that we can just blend in and we don't get racist stuff so that's something that I think my family kind of taught me um but it kind of helped that I like to help people. So yeah, I thought some of it is I've always been pushed to be literally the best I can possibly be. So I don't stand out as being rubbish or something. But I don't know. I think a lot of it as well is you can have a, like I love my exercise and sport. I've played at a good level in cricket and hockey and stuff. It's been great. But 
that kind of championship mentality that if you're in work you've got 20 minutes rather than just scrolling through instagram or going to chat someone you can read something or you can go to the waiting room talk to a patient because ultimately that's why i do the job is the patients if there's no patients i wouldn't be in radiotherapy so like the technical side is interesting but i care more about how we get people through it because obviously they have a story before they come to us just like i i had a story before coming to this country it's really important to hear it and i think as a therapeutic radiographer you get to hear it more and more and the more you talk to patients you really realize how much exactly as joe just said it really affects your life in so many different ways i mean you could be a younger patient you you know you might get loads of sick leave but when patients come to radiotherapy they might have already used up their sick leave for chemo or surgery and now they're not actually getting any sick pay at all or they've lost their jobs because of it you know there's, there's a lot of multitude of factors that we don't consider so i think that motivates me that you know people are going through a really really tough time and i know i can make a difference even if it's just smiling at someone i know it's harder with a mask and we've now everyone's got wrinkles around their eyes because that's how you know when someone's smiling but it's the little things like that and i think growing up in india healthcare is if you're below the poverty line you go to the government hospital and take your chances but more, more like most people don't survive what they didn't survive when i was younger because they'd come from 12-hour journeys in the middle of nowhere to come to a hospital and yeah not the best standards let's say um or if you can afford private you're spending ridiculous amounts of money probably the same doctor and you know I remember when I worked in A&E in India and an accountant used to come on the ward round with us to make sure we got the most out of every patient like that that's just not something that well hopefully it never happens touch wood in the NHS but that's why we love the NHS because it's free you know you get hit by a car you'll wake up in ITU but that was all free in America you've got like 200,000 pound bill at least or if you don't have an insurance card they leave you at the side of the road you're dead that's not something that happens here and i think that's why it's just yeah i love the nhs it's just such a great institution for what it stands for and it just helps people who will never be able to afford something privately but it gives them the same level of care if not better um so yeah that's i always remember actually working in hong kong and uh i got tonsillitis and i went to the local hospital and thankfully obviously working through sheffield hallam they were like oh um yeah will cover everything but they wouldn't even let me in the hospital until I had proof of all my documentation um and it was just really different like I had a fever I was hallucinating I wasn't well and I was expected to have a conversation with the insurance company to go someone needs to get me in this hospital um yeah it's it's bizarre I can't yeah it's it's scary to think of what people go through and we take our health for granted don't we really because you think if I do get ill then I know that the NHS is there to help me. Are you guys seeing anything at the minute with the um, the cost of living crisis and in terms of like a lot of people travel a long way for their radiotherapy treatment? And I think that's whilst the treatment's free, it's the a lot of the time the cost of getting there isn't. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I think clinical nurse specialists are great for that because when they when the patients are first kind of consented or diagnosed they'll be there and they'll do hopefully like a holistic needs assessment but more and more patients are coming through i mean majority of cancer patients will get a form of disability allowance or you know some form of maybe I don't know, universal credit or some form of help in some way even if it's a Macmillan grant which would be a few hundred pounds or something um i think that's always been there but now the pressures are definitely ramping up a bit more i think yeah 
personally of like i think working in london um we do see some of the less like more deprived areas of people coming through and they yeah like, i mean when there's a train in a tube track for example if they have to shell out for a 30 pound uber that's like one patient that was his food for the week gone just because he had to get an uber but then he walked two hours home so that he didn't have to pay that again but i think that's that's the little things that you know maybe you don't always see that you know yes sometimes i can afford to get an uber somewhere which is great but for someone that would be a meal or a meal for their family member or something like that so i think it's, it'll probably get worse definitely but we can only do as much as the system offers and i think now universal credit's been cut a bit short as well i think if i read correctly it's not as much um as it used to be and i think even trying to call them the waiting lists and stuff are just take forever but also if you think there aren't enough clinical nurse specialists or professionals you can fill out that form in the first place the delays on that the implications on that that can be months for someone to get the universal credit so that's something else just linking back to the workforce i suppose but um like maggie's they're amazing like centers like that or the mcmillan help centers where they have benefits advisors who just sit there with you and go through it like that that is amazing and you know that's something that's always been there but i know the the maggie's next door to us in the west london one um the two the lovely people really really nice benefits advisors you know whatever their day is they'll always just sit with people and just go through it every single receipt at a time whatever they have to do and that's what it's about because it, it, we, we can't always do the same as a clinical person to help in that way but don't you think what's worrying is that as as a society we're put under more pressure financially the charitable donations that people give to charities like Macmillan to Maggie's um actually will dry up and those roles will go and we rely the nhs relies so heavily on charitable donations and i'm not sure necessarily that people realize that that yes you get your standard care but a lot of charities buy equipment for radiotherapy departments or help support some of the roles around information support or um you know some of the holistic care opportunities available for patients and i really worry about the consequences of of that longer term and also as a, an educator i already see students really struggling financially to pay for accommodation to pay up front for secondary living accommodation um, you know therapeutic radiography students probably suffer more than any other healthcare student because geographically they may be traveling further than other students um, and actually, that will have a devastating consequence unless the government is able to sort out how students can claim, get those claims back quicker and increase the miles, um, the pay per mile. So, you know, students at the minute don't have an equitable amount compared to someone who is already qualified. Why? Like, it, it seems silly. They're doing they're doing the same job. They're working in the department. They're supporting the patients. Yes, they're learning, but... I don't understand it. And actually, you you are going to find students leave as a result of cost. And they always have done. Finances have always been a reason for attrition from courses like therapeutic radiography. But that is only going to get worse as as the kind of financial crisis continues. Yeah, it's, um, it's a worrying picture. God, it's just so depressing. <laughs> There's so much to be done, though. There is so much to be done. And, it's, and, and I share the view that things are going to get worse sadly and um, before they're going to get better but hopefully 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 they will get better um at some stage in the future and like you said we can, we can all just only keep doing as much as we can keep doing um 
and try and look after ourselves and each other as well. I wanted to move on slightly and, and talk a little bit about research, if that's okay, because um, that's kind of my background and interest. Um, and I, I wanted to ask, like, Naman, I've seen that you submitted a paper for publication um, quite recently, and I just wanted to ask a bit about um, the importance of research within the profession and, and maybe a bit about how we can lower the barriers between the two, if that's okay. Yeah, Um I think research is really fascinating for me you're you know you might have, everyone gets in a youtube rabbit hole but for me it's always like research you read one thing and think oh that's interesting go into another one then you go into another one, then you realize i've just wasted an hour writing something when i didn't really need to look into that or whatever but I suppose i can go back to marie curie obviously research that's how it started they started x-raying each other's hands so just to see what happened and then when it happened they realized cool <laughs> i can see through my hand and then yeah from then that's snowballed obviously into what we do now on a normal basis but it's just that curiosity I think that's what for me really drives research because really we do research every day I mean you know you look up a recipe that's still technically research um, anything and everything you do you look up go on money supermarket still re researching something so it's just about curiosity for me um, I know I get sidetracked a lot when it comes to research working with some people but um, <clears throat> I think the most recent one for me is i'm working on a few different things but since my talk at estray this year talking about health inequalities and especially kind of skin tone differences and just the fact that we've basically just been ignoring darker skin ever since the beginning of time basically um to put it nicely i suppose is my current thing is just trying to highlight the differences and maybe the structural racism that's happening within radiotherapy so you know consent forms that are directed towards one skin tone language terminology all this sort of stuff that's what i'm looking into so lots of people say i'm the skin person but eh, skin's all right i think for me it's more about health inequalities and helping people like me probably just be seen um i suppose again it just goes back to kind of being brought up and told to try and just fit in and blend in and do the right thing but yeah it's not i never really thought i'd find a voice for something like this it's stuff that's always grated on me like being through it and people being racist and whatever but I think now just seeing the impact on patients and just watching patients like, even just come up to me and say it says look for redness on my consent form I've signed it but like that's never going to happen on my skin and I'm just like no it's not it's quite simple I mean you can't hide that and that's just that if I did even try and hide it obviously it'd be lying and just unethical but it's just it's contributing to that structural racism um I think the barriers obviously are stuff like this is scary yeah you're not just putting your neck out there this is your name you're calling an institution out if you want but someone's got to do it life is really short isn't it i mean we can't keep living in 2022 where darker skinned people are just ignored like you know in london it's a very multi-diverse place there's probably more darker skinned people coming to my department than there are lighter skinned people sometimes so it's really really important it's going to have implications for the future um as we talk about things more you know mental health has talked about more lgbtq plus trans everything everything's being more open but yeah sometimes i just find that in things related to racism they just they don't always come out in healthcare i think healthcare has always been slightly biased or racist because everything has come from greek times and it's evolved with british medicine things like that um colonialism and whatever but yeah barriers there's loads of barriers mainly will always be time but also i think the investment from your seniors or your management 
sometimes managers don't think research is important or oh, well, we have a research radiographer why aren't they doing it well, they're doing a phd they've already got research they're already doing things on their own like they're already helping the department go but i think for me if anyone's ever tried to tell me to look at research it's just been oh we'll just read something even if it's just an article in some whatever like just to spark the interest and then you can start going into things looking into why this has happened if you know just building a knowledge base and that that's how you kind of lower the barrier is just someone giving you even if it's like 30 minutes go and read something i know not everyone will do that but it's yeah time will be the biggest barrier and i think having a right a decent mentor so a mentor who will red pen everything you do all the time because it will just help you be a better researcher but also writing grants is really hard i mean nine times out of ten you get rejected and the, the feedback can be brutal i remember the first thing i put in uh it was a pilot study from the survey which i'm still trying to finish writing so i'm doing it in my own time but the feedback you're not supposed to get the name of the reviewer but this mammographer from abroad wrote her name at the bottom i mean was brutal like i nearly cried when i read it i was like wow there's no point getting into research don't do phd just give up i remember sending it to heidi and she just said yeah this happens uh well when you become a reviewer and you've done your phd and you're doing well just remember not to be rude like you this reviewer because that's what destroys people so yeah that's the barriers just people who get to a certain point and i think forget that there are junior people like they used to be who want to break in and do something good just yeah um be nice be kind <laughs> yeah like be constructive i don't get it i don't you know i've also years ago been on the receiving end of rubbish review reviews and and it really like stuff like that definitely put me off wanting to be an academic and stay in academia after my PhD. I mean, I loved my PhD and doing research, but all of that side of it, I just don't understand at all. Um, so yeah, um, but I, I do think there are ways that research is so important and there are ways that things can be done and, um, and when great people come together, um, then yeah, it can be really, really beneficial all around. Um, Joe, I know you've been involved in research too. Um, how does it make a difference? How do you think it makes a difference to the profession? So research has always been my kryptonite. And I say that because as soon as you go to university, there is an expectation as an academic that you must do research, you must contribute. You know, it's written into all our job descriptions. And actually, um, that can be quite scary when actually my expertise was clinical you know that's where that's where I had all my knowledge and skill but I'd done my dissertations but I'd never I'd never done what I would consider formal research and um and certainly not any primary research so I was always really really scared and would actively avoid anything to do with research and actually it's testament really to Radchat. I'd always done lots of publications and I'd always contributed, largely because of my interest around recruitment and retention. So I'd always added from that perspective, but I've definitely got involved more in research over the last five years. And that's largely because I want to make a difference and to make a difference, you have to have the evidence base. So if it's not there and it's not existing, I have to produce it. So it's almost like for me a way to make sure that we're doing better and that we're evolving and developing service and practice. Um, and so that's why I'm much more heavily involved. But exactly like you say, Numan and Lisa, 
I have benefited from having amazing mentors, from being part of research teams. You know, the confidence that you get from working with more experienced researchers really does help. And sometimes it's it's refreshing, you know, the feedback that I've had is you think about things very differently or you ask questions that I would never have considered. And actually, in terms of kind of the recommendations that come out of some of the research that's improved because you're asking questions as the methodology is being produced or you're starting to critically appraise things in a different way. So I definitely think it's a two-way relationship and working together on projects, I think, is definitely better. Um, It's hard to coordinate diaries and it's hard to, you know, get the drive to go, right, okay, let's just get this over the, the kind of finish line. But I certainly love doing things with with people and all contributing again exactly the same as what I've said previously if we all do a little bit actually it's much easier um, and more enjoyable I think um, you know supporting each other from that peer support perspective as well. I think one of the best things about RadChat and what you guys have created really is the sense of community and how you do encourage all this collaboration I mean there's so many people um, that have I've learned about like Lisa for example through RadChat uh, all the work you guys do and I think it's a great network that you've you've created so yeah that's brilliant. Um, I've had one, another question for you um, obviously therapeutic radiography is always developing um, the technology is always advancing um, are there any sort of common misconceptions that you guys get a lot from either Uh, potential students or patients about um, radiotherapy that you'd like to answer am I going to be radioactive (laughs) that's all it comes up every other day I think like oh I want to see my grandchildren tonight am I going to be radioactive like no not unless you're having radioactive iodine um it's but I think it's something that we talk about all the time is it's just about advocacy not many people know what radiotherapy is quite plain and simple you know people I think a patient said to me today, oh, are you going to be on strike soon? Like, no, I'm not a nurse. Or a patient will call me a doctor or a nursing doctor or something else. But radiography is very different. Um, and I mean, the amount of patients that come to our department who want a CT or an MRI scan, it's, like, it's not the same. Similar, but not the same. I think that's the problem with the misconceptions. There's loads of misconceptions. I know Joe's got a list because I've asked her for her list of it before. But it's, yeah, that's how we how we kind of tackle them and yeah using your protected title so not radiotherapist or radiotherapy radiographer or therapy radiographer therapeutic radiographer just say that like i know it's a mouthful sometimes but once you say it you normalize it and then they'll go home and tell their family oh it was a therapeutic radiographer you know it doesn't take much um i say this because this is what joe told me when she told me off (laughs) um do you work with radios that's always the big one. My grandparents were like, oh, yeah, you're going to be on the radio. I'm like, no, 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 absolutely not. Uh, they were really disappointed. Um, but yeah, that that's always the big one. Do you work with radios? Um, and then the other one is just confusing it with diagnostics. They're like, oh, you take x-rays. And you're like, mm, no. Um, so it is exactly as Numan said. It's just kind of promoting what it is we do. And if you've got time, tell people... I always remember going to a Council of Deans event and um, I was part of the repair project and we were all sitting around kind of having conversations and something someone said really stuck with me, which was like, oh, when people ask me what I do, I just kind of like, oh, I just work in the hospital. 
and it it really grated on me because I thought you know what that's a really missed opportunity to educate the public so when you're at a dinner party and someone says oh what do you do um, saying you're a therapeutic radiographer and following it up with I treat cancer patients using high ionizing x-rays and kind of giving some clarity to what that role entails that's one person that is better educated about that so if that person goes on to develop cancer god forbid touch wood they don't but if they do they'd have gone oh yeah I have heard of radiotherapy before and I have heard of a therapeutic radiographer and I just think it's it's just having those phrases. I certainly find when I'm working open days within the clinical environments and through the university that um, lots of people don't know what a therapeutic radiographer and you can understand why. The diagnostic radiography talks are packed, absolutely packed. The physio talks are jam-packed and then I've got four people and I'm like, nobody likes me. Um, but I know why it is because when you're young and you fall on your trampoline and you break your clavicle, you go to A&E and you have an x-ray and you're like, oh, it's a diagnostic radiographer and, you know, they're introducing themselves and you might see them once, you might see them 10 times during your time as a very, uh, a very, a very worrying child who falls over all the time. But um, you have access to those healthcare professionals, whereas it's, it, you know, even though paediatrics get cancer, it's not as prolific, it's not as talked about, it's not as obvious to children, and certainly not when they're going through their teenage years. Um, you know, they might have grandparents who have cancer, but a lot of the time as society, we protect people from cancer. You know, it's scary, people are scared by cancer. So do grandparents have really open conversations with their grandchildren about, I'm going through treatment, I'm having radiotherapy, I'm seeing therapeutic radiographers. Um, and we know from the research I've done, we know that most people, and a big shout out to the co-rips team that I'm working with, Shannon Johnson, um, Kim Meeking and Zoe, um, from uh, University of Suffolk like some of the reasons people go into the profession it's it's because their family members have told them about it so if we can educate patients to go oh I saw a lovely therapeutic radiographer today called Numan and he talked to me about how to look after myself and gave me some financial support people go oh yeah that sounds like a really nice job I might google that and have a look that's all it takes just wish more people did it. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I know I've been guilty of that in the past. Um, I think I've, some people are just awkward, myself included. I don't like talking about myself too much. But uh, since like hearing from you guys about the importance of you know promoting the profession, I'm definitely making a conscious effort to talk more about the job. So hopefully more people will do as well listening to this show. Not many jobs you get to use a two million pound machine and talk to people and get chocolates. I mean, it's pretty good, right? When you put it like that, yeah. <laughs> this is what I have to say in talks. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I love the STEM, the STEM talks. So if anyone's listening and wants to get involved in advocacy work, um, join Joe's special interest group, Promoting Radiography. It's very important. Okay, so I think we're coming towards the end now, but although we could keep talking... Um, forever I think um we'll just sort of wrap, wrap it up a few a few more questions for you guys um uh, Joe, would you like to say a little bit where where you see yourself in five years time retired on a beach um <laughs> uh do you know what 
I never ever make five year plans. Never. It's actually something I am quite passionate about, largely because it stops me from saying yes to everything. If I have a very set idea of what I should be doing and when I should be doing it, I think it adds stress and pressure. And actually, it may also stop me saying yes to to opportunities that present themselves. So, yeah, I don't know where I'll be in five years. Could be dead. Um, So live each day as you want to live it um, and take those opportunities and see where life takes you. Sorry, I know that's not the in five years time I want to have X, Y and Z job, but it's it's how I've kind of always been, really. What beach would you go to, Joe? I want to know this. And what would you be drinking? I would I would literally, I think, just get a yacht and I would just go beach hopping and I'd drink all the fresh juices from all of the areas that I visit, uh, harvest my own fruit, and maybe put some vodka in it. <laughs> and if anyone's listening to this, join academia because you can afford a yacht. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, academia will not pay for the yacht. Um, my family will. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I'm. I know I'm very chilled out, and I've realised this more and more now that I'm getting married next year, and I'm still very chilled out, and we haven't booked much. Um, and I'm doing an Ironman next year. <laughs> I think these are the only things I know at the minute. I'm applying for PhD funding, which I've been doing for a year and a bit now, just because of doing it in my own time on the tube whatever it's not it's not easy to do but I think in five years maybe have a child that's all I really care about I think work is work like it's not your be all and end all you know once you leave a department you know they're not gonna they remember what you've done but someone else will fill up your role you know patients that's what they're the people who really remember you and I think yeah hopefully just I don't want to lose my clinical work I refuse to go to academia <laughs> um like I want to do research but clinical academic be with patients all the time even if it means sitting as a volunteer in a reception and talking to people making them coffee I'd do it it doesn't matter what band you are or where you get to that's what it's about like people hiding in offices that's never going to be me um got to be out there so that's what I'll say if none of that happens that's fine um I'll still be happy just get on with it I love reception that's honestly when I retire I just want I want to go and work on reception especially in the GP surgery I was like tell me what's wrong not that kind of tell me what's wrong that tell me what's wrong (laughs) I think we've got one final question about um to ask you both um about what your three top tips are uh Joe do you want to go first See, usually we ask for 10, so asking me just for three is going to be really hard. Um, So, do things that spark joy. Um, I absolutely, truly believe in. I think it's it's really important that we enjoy our lives. And actually, if you do a job, you do work that that makes you joyous, I think it helps. And even in your day-to-day work, if if life's challenging, think about the things that can bring you joy. Is it talking to the patients? Is it reviewing images? Is it, um, you know, walking to work rather than driving um, and having to find a car parking space? Those kinds of things I think are really important. Um, Tell people you love them and thank them um, as and when appropriate. I think there's um, lots of people I've lost in my life 
Um, whether that's through just drifting apart or, or through death. But actually, I wish I'd just told them more often that I loved them and that they really did mean a lot to me. And I definitely don't say thank you enough. I think um, everyone loves positive reinforcement and I don't think we do it enough um, within the jobs that we have. So, you know, when your student's done a great job that day, they've they've kind of really supported you, thank them. It makes such a big difference to be able to kind of do that and make someone's day and also make them feel like they've been able to contribute and do things that scare you. So there's so much in my life that I've said yes to and I'm not joking. I'm like feeling sick. I want to go for a nervous wee. Luckily, I talk when I'm nervous. So that's always stood me in good good stead but yeah I think it helps it helps push you outside of your boundaries and yeah gets the adrenaline going so they're my top three great tips thank you um Naman what about you my three would be life is really short if you work in oncology you know that better than anyone else um just take every opportunity possible if someone says let's go for a walk just go and do it doesn't matter if it's raining that means that person needs something just enjoy it like yeah i think people we just take things too seriously but take every opportunity that you can um don't forget to be kind as i said you never know what anyone else is going through or what they might have i mean one little negative comment can really ruin someone's life that's what i would say and i've been guilty of being annoyed or ranting and not realizing my own words so that's my own self-reflection but um and <laughs> something i learned in the military get comfortable being uncomfortable throw yourself into that tough conversation you're gonna to have to do it at one point the more you avoid something life brings it right back around and you've got to do it and whenever you say you're never going to be able to do something you always end up doing it so just yeah just throw yourself into everything you can so good tips thank you and i know you guys are good at making me get comfortable being uncomfortable and uh, yeah i do want to say thank you for that um and also, yeah, I think, I guess, on behalf of all the listeners as well, I think your rad chat, you guys are, are very good at, um, you know, celebrating all the work that other people do. But, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for all the work you guys do because I know how much work you put into it all the time. It's not just the podcast. It's, you know, you're answering uh, questions from patients on social media. You're doing all sorts, you know, behind the scenes. Um, and I think that's a real testament to how dedicated you guys are in the job yeah that's absolutely brilliant that's brilliant i don't know how you do it all i really don't but it is brilliant i totally agree tara um and i'm so glad we did this um a huge huge thank you to our guests um joe and naman um and your hosts today have been lisa whitaker and tara smith and um yeah just thanks for a brilliant chat and thank you all for listening to rad chat on world radiography day 2022